You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted here today to again be joined by Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health at Kaiser Family Foundation's Kaiser Health News. She's also an internist, infectious disease specialist, and epidemiologist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and at Bellevue Hospital. She also directs two excellent podcast series, American Diagnosis and Epidemic. Celine, thank you so much for being with us today. It's real, real pleasure and honor to have you back again. Oh, sure. It's great to be here. Let's start with monkeypox. There's quite a bit of controversy surrounding it. Before we get into that, just give our listeners like, like a quick synopsis around monkeypox. What is it? How's it transmitted? What kind of symptoms? And we can talk about the problems surrounding vaccination testing data. Sure. So monkeypox is endemic in West Africa and Central Africa, which means that it is constantly being transmitted, uh, usually at low levels in those areas. And what has happened is that it has uh, spread now outside of those endemic regions uh, around the world. So you're seeing it in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia. And that is what we now call a pandemic, which means that you have a novel virus and and novel to those parts of the world that is causing outbreaks on multiple continents. So we are in a pandemic of monkeypox, but I think it's really important for people to understand monkeypox is not COVID and a pandemic does not necessarily mean lockdowns or emergencies, but it does mean that you do have this virus around the world. In terms of how it's transmitted, it is transmitted through close contact. So usually that would be close contact, direct contact between skin surfaces or mucosal surfaces. And that includes the mouth, the genitalia, and the anus, anywhere that somebody could have a lesion. And then very rarely can also be transmitted through respiratory droplets or sprays, you can think of them. So, you know, those really juicy sprays if somebody sneezes really hard. But that's really at very close distances. It's not like COVID, which is spread through the air. It's airborne through aerosols. And that can be transmitted at much farther distances. The symptoms of monkeypox include fevers, swollen lymph glands, very often lesions. And the lesions can be anywhere on the body, including inside the mouth, on the genitalia, around or inside the anus. For clinicians, it's really important to understand that you may have to be swabbing patients' lesions internally in order to get an accurate diagnosis. And those internal lesions are the ones that tend to be extremely painful, as you can imagine, if you're trying to eat or drink, if you have a lesion in the mouth, or having a bowel movement, if you have a lesion in the anus. Those uh, symptoms really do need aggressive pain management. Thank you. So here in the United States, things, things are heating up considerably, and it's true outside the United States. We're up to over 1,800 cases here. United States, pretty swift escalation. General sense is that there's a gross undercount. Globally, there's about the 12,500 confirmed cases, again, also thought to be quite an undercount. We're seeing a lot of criticisms flying from within the administration itself and from without. You yourself have voiced concerns about this. things are moving too slowly, too little, not serious enough. We're seeing some inter- internal squabbles between CDC and White House. 
And it's raising some pretty negative reflections about did we learn anything from the COVID-19 outbreak? The areas where we're seeing quite a bit of concern, tests, lots of delays in tests, the vaccine, the Bavaria Nordic Genius vaccine, a lot of shortages, but we're pe- catching up a little bit. Therapies, the T-Pox therapy, not available much. And a lot of concern about data, about getting good enough clinical and demographic data on this. Just the big picture question, how did this happen? How did we get into a situation like this where it looks as if on the major component elements, we're just not succeeding very well? Well, it's one thing to recognize your mistakes, uh, but to really learn from the errors of the COVID pandemic would mean investing real resources and money to strengthen public health infrastructure. That is really learning from those mistakes. And unfortunately, that is not happening nearly fast enough at the scale that it really needs to be. There is some money that's going to be coming through the CDC to state and local health departments later this year to strengthen workforce data systems and the like, but that's just not happening fast enough or at the scale, again, that it needs to be done. And we are also emerging from the COVID pandemic with public health departments that are weaker and more beat up than they were going into the pandemic. You have had a lot of public health leaders and staff who have either quit, been fired, or retired and not replaced over the course of the pandemic. So we're even more short-staffed than we were heading in. Is this something that's out of control? Is it something that's overblown? Is it something that we're about to see exponential growth with? I think we are going to see the numbers shoot up significantly, and that's likely a combination of real transmission, but also just ramping up testing. And as you ramp up testing, you're going to uncover a lot more of the transmission that's been occurring. In terms of the general public, do you need to be worried about monkeypox? Yes and no. You don't need to be worried about your personal safety right now. But if this continues the way it is, you will eventually see transmission outside of the current populations in which it's actively spreading. So currently, monkeypox is actively spreading among men who have sex with men, uh, gay men, bisexual men, trans women. But eventually, this will spill over into women. And this becomes a real problem when you have a woman who's pregnant who has monkeypox that can be very dangerous and deadly for a pregnant woman, for the fetus, for newborns, and also other populations that are very high risk if this spreads more widely would be immunocompromised persons and little kids. And so we don't want it to get to that point. We don't want to say, oh, well, we don't have to worry about it until it's affecting those populations. You really want to be aggressive and control it before it gets to that point, and ideally control it so that it does not become entrenched and endemic in this country. Let me ask this, though. This isn't something that this administration or this Congress or most politicians have really been discussing. It's something that's kind of bubbling beneath the surface among physicians and global health professionals. Why aren't we talking more frankly about this? And why aren't we hearing more from this administration on this? I think it's a combination of things. I think one, the American people are exhausted from the COVID pandemic and really don't have a lot of bandwidth to take on thinking about another infectious disease outbreak. I think the administration has also hit walls in terms of trying to get more funding for really basic COVID response efforts, whether that's vaccination, testing, treatment, and the like. And again, building up public health infrastructure is part of that. And so to ask for resources for monkeypox is really a non-starter when you can't even get it for COVID. 
why is monkeypox not seen as being as important? I think very often legislators and other public officials are reactive, so they're not going to really respond until they feel like their electorate feels that this is an issue. And very often the electorate won't feel like it's an issue until it's more actively spreading in the general population. And unfortunately, that's very short-sighted. It means that once it does spread into the general population, you have a much bigger problem on your hands. The scale is much bigger. The solutions are more difficult. And this is, again, one of the many lessons of public health that we're not learning is prevention being proactive, and we're just not doing it. Celine, the... um the talk shows yesterday and the day before, Tony Fauci, Scott Gottlieb, and others, and there was a pretty alarming set of claims that this is out of control, that it's moved beyond the prospect of actually controlling and eliminating, and that it, the window's already been closed on that, and that it is becoming endemic. What's your thoughts on those? Are those premature judgments, or have we entered that phase? I think it is somewhat premature, and I think you won't really be able to make that call as it's happening. I think it'll be more of a retrospective call. But I do think that if we could really ramp up testing, ramp up vaccination right now, monkeypox is not a chronic infection, which, you know, so people recover from it. So it is a bit easier, for example, to control monkeypox than HIV, um, which is a chronic lifelong infection. But it would require really scaling up our, our public health interventions, and we're not doing that quickly enough. Yeah. Just to repeat one point you made, which is there's a population of men who have sex with men who are the center of this, of this outbreak, but they're not the only population, but they've been driving this. Within that population also, we have over a million people living with HIV in this country who are immunocompromised and at threat. And then you reference pregnant women and newborns as a special concern. And as this grows, I would think, to get to Andrew's point, this becomes a bigger popular issue here. We're seeing some of the fear of stigma and fear of marginalization within, the, uh, within our gay community here in the United States. And all of those sensitivities, trying to traverse those in the communication strategy to the populations that are at most risk right now. It's interesting, too, that New York, which has emerged as, as the epicenter of this with about a third of the cases recently, there's quite a bit of public alarm and quite a bit of open discussion. You've got the mayor speaking about this now, and it's it has happened very, very rapidly. And you tied it back to the weariness of our of our health system and the fact that we've had we've had so many stumbles in the recent months in trying to get a predictable and sustainable flow of funding for both domestic and international response and investment in preparedness. This comes along and we stumble, we shouldn't be too surprised. Is that the right message to take? I guess it is. It's not surprising if you don't learn from your mistakes, if you don't invest in doing better, if you don't approach public health proactively. It's not surprising that we're stumbling again. And it's not like public health officials don't know the basic tenets of how do you respond to an outbreak like this. They know it's, you know, you do the case, the case investigation and contact tracing, you do the testing, you, in the case of monkeypox, do vaccination of the close contacts and then circle out from there what we call ring vaccination, sort of concentric circles of risk. They know this. The problem is having the tools, the funding, the staffing to actually do it is an entirely different question. Well, and, and how do you message this when 
you've got a population in the United States that is, you know, quote unquote, so done with COVID, even though we need to talk about COVID in just a minute here. We're so done with COVID, but yet we have another disease that is starting to break out. And as you said, it's not going to be contained to, you know, specific populations. It's going to become more widespread and potentially dangerous to those who are immunocompromised, pregnant women, newborns, etc. How do you message this? Look, monkeypox is not a gay disease. Right. And prior outbreaks of monkeypox have involved people who work with animals. So that could be lab workers, for example. It's not a lab worker disease. It is just a disease that is spread through close contact. And I think, unfortunately, until people start to think of it that way as a disease of close contact for which other people are at risk, including themselves, based on you know what behaviors they engage in that involves direct contact, skin-to-skin contact, you know, we could see this in a, on a wrestling team, for example. And I think, unfortunately, people will not take that risk seriously until we actually see it. It's going to be reactive. Now, in 2003, when we had cases here in the United States transmitted by prairie dogs, which were kind of exotic pets that were put in proximity of lab rats, Gambian lab rats in, I think it was Milwaukee, and we had 50 or so people infected, I think. Yeah. And the animal... Reservoirs, those that those animals that were infected were destroyed. Here, it seems to me that we're, we're not only is this going to be endemic with become endemic likely within our human population, but it's going to find an animal reservoir. What's your thought on that? Well, even though it's called monkeypox, we think that the real reservoir is various different kinds of rodents and small mammals. And we certainly have many different species of rodents and small mammals here in the United States in which monkeypox could become endemic. And so that is certainly a, a very real risk here. And it's another gap in our surveillance is, are we seeing spillover into animal populations here in the US? We don't know. Yeah. Right now, there's a scramble to get the vaccine supply up. Bavaria Nordic had only very small production. There's been some stockpiles in Denmark owned by the US that are going to be released. We'll see another 780,000 released by the end of July. And there's about I don't know, 156,000 have been already deployed and there's another 130,000 on stock. So you add those numbers up, we're going to get to some more viability on numbers. Testing is ramping up. I'm hopeful that we're seeing better data, demographic and clinical data that will tell us what the course of this is and under what conditions and which direction it's going. Are we on a path to correct course in the United States, in your thought, in the coming weeks? Well, on, on data collection, let's start there. Most of the data is coming in from the states, really just case counts. You're, they're not even collecting the most basic of demographic data. You would want to know what proportion of these are in men versus women, for example. We know there's been at least a handful of cases among women, but we don't know for sure the totals. You would want to know what is the time from exposure to symptom onset to resolution? How long is somebody infectious for? What bodily fluids might be infectious like saliva or semen? We don't have answers on that. So we're really behind the eight ball on data for sure. With respect to vaccination, we don't have enough vaccine for everybody. There have been some strategies. In fact, this is what New York City is doing. They're starting with one dose of the two-dose vaccine and trying to cover as many people as possible. And I think that's a very reasonable approach. If you look at the studies based on antibody responses, and there was a study looking at ACAM 2000, which is the smallpox vaccine as compared to Janaeus. 
you know, one dose gets you very good protection, at least for the, you know, foreseeable future. And so that would be a way to stretch the limited supply. Celine, this is something we've been dancing around since we began this podcast, but is this inevitably going to become politicized along partisan lines? I think to some degree it already is because of the population affected. And unfortunately, you know, it's really hard in this situation. On the one hand, you don't want to stigmatize the MSM, men who have sex with men population. That is the population in which it's actively spreading right now. People do need to be informed and we do need to give people some sense of what their risk is currently, how to protect themselves right now. That also means speaking in plain language not being afraid of talking about the parts of the body that are affected. For example, genitalia, penis, anus. You know, these are words I cannot always say on television, for example, when I do an interview. And we need to be very plain spoken so that people understand exactly how this can be transmitted, exactly how to protect themselves. It would be like telling women they might get chest cancer, not breast cancer. You know, we, we need to get away from this prudishness so that people understand what this is. You know, not being able to say those words or talk about this really frankly gives rise to conspiracy theories. That's right. And so I think the more we can be direct with people, be very simple, plain spoken, give people the information they need, be clear about it. Whenever you have an information void or confusion, that is when you get misinformation spreading. The state of, you know, the conspiracy world on this so far. Is it just completely nuts? Is it so far out there? Are people believing it? What's your assessment of 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 that situation? Well, it's almost like they took the conspiracy theories around COVID, took out the word COVID, and filled in monkeypox. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so everything from this is a conspiracy to have people vote by ballot and not have to come in in person to the polls. To this is a lab leak from Wuhan, to this was genetically engineered, to you know, you name it. All of those same exact conspiracy theories are being recycled and repurposed about monkeypox. I really want to ask your thoughts on BA4 and 5, and now we've got 2.75. What I'd like to touch on here is what do these mean? Because you've been you've been very active, very vocal in trying to explain to public what these variants are and how they are different from what preceded them. You've also been very active at trying to deliver very concrete advice about behavior, about whether to get boosted, what kind of strategy on masking and social contact, ventilation, how to think about Paxlovid and testing and the like. You've also talked a lot about the complexities that face us in developing new vaccine boosters in the midst of this quickly evolving variant. So those are three or four big questions. If you could just start with what are these variants in your view? What do they represent? So BA4 and BA5, I think BA5 is going to be the one that ends up winning out, so to speak, in the US and dominating. What makes them different is that they are so mutated. Their spike protein is so different that it looks different to our immune systems from earlier variants, whether that was the Wuhan, the Alpha, the Delta. These Omicron subvariants look really different. And even BA1, the original Omicron, looks really different from BA5. And so a lot of people who might have gotten an infection over the winter holidays with the original Omicron, that residual immunity from that infection doesn't really protect them against reinfection with BA5. 
We are seeing hospitalizations go up across the country with this BA5 surge. We're seeing a lot of cases, increase in hospitalizations, but the biggest increase in hospitalizations are occurring in counties that have the lowest vaccination rates. So counties where people are fully vaccinated in the 30 to 60 percent is where we're seeing the biggest increases. And this is a problem because these tend to be areas that are more rural, have less in the way of hospital healthcare infrastructure, less in the way of ICUs. And so that is a concern. At least for now, we have not seen a big jump in people needing ICU care, which is a silver lining here. That's probably a reflection of what immunity they have. It may not protect them against an infection, but it may protect them against the severe COVID pneumonia that you might get. We're facing a very weary public and we're trying to get this weary public to return to thinking about those sorts of behaviors that will protect them under high transmission circumstances like masks, social contact, ventilation and the like. How do you deal with that? I think we're in a very difficult situation. I think some would advocate for a return of mandates. I think we have to be very careful with that. You've already had some 26 states across the country where public health powers have been scaled back. And so I think you do need to look at mandates as a, if nothing works, kind of solution when you're in a true crisis, but one that you should be very careful about employing. So what may work in Los Angeles isn't going to work in rural Nebraska. Exactly. Exactly. And I think You know, on some level, we need to be transitioning to a place where people have the tools to protect themselves. There are passive interventions to protect people. So that would include indoor air quality uh, improvements. So improving ventilation, air filtration, UV germicidal irradiation. Those are passive because you, as somebody walking into that space, you don't have to do anything to benefit from that protection. And so it's really, in my mind, a tragedy that we have not scaled that up more You also need certain safety nets in place because some people will get infected. Some people will get hospitalized and get very sick. And we need things like paid sick and family medical leave that would allow people to stay home when they're sick and not spread it around the office or to stay home with their child when their child is sick and not spread it around school. Things like expanding healthcare coverage, insurance coverage. In fact, we're going to see people losing health insurance coverage probably early 2023. Sometime around then, we expect that there will be an end uh, declaring that the public health emergency with COVID is over. And when that happens, a number of people will lose Medicaid coverage. People will also lose the more generous subsidies to purchase the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare marketplace plans. They won't be able to afford them anymore. And so we're looking at a lot of people losing health insurance in the coming months when it's really the opposite that we should be trying to achieve if we want to mitigate the impacts of COVID. Now, people know, people are reading the paper, listening to the news, know that there's a new round of boosters that will become available in October focused on that FDA and CDC are looking at that are being developed by by the different mRNA producers. And those will be attuned to some of these Omicron variants. Your view is. With the onset of this surge of BA5, folks shouldn't wait around to get boosted. They should just go ahead and get boosted now. Is that right? So if you're age 50 and over, you are eligible for that second booster, that fourth dose of vaccine. If you're age 50 and over, you should just go ahead and get that dose. If you are somebody who's 12 and over and you're immunocompromised, you should also go ahead and get that fourth dose. You are also eligible because we are seeing a BA5, BA4, 5 surge in the U.S. right now. 
the risk is right now. You wouldn't save water during a house fire because of the fire that might happen in a couple months. You deal with the fire you have now. That said, we will have updated vaccines for BA4-5 available as early as October, perhaps more widely in November, December, that will better match what is at least circulating now. We don't know for sure what will be circulating in the fall. The hope is that this will better approximate what's circulating in the fall. But it's important to understand, even if you get that booster now, that will not prevent you, that will not preclude you from getting a updated vaccine booster come the fall. So, you know, that's my question. If you're over 50, you've already had your fourth booster, how much should you feel protected? I know quite a lot of people that got the fourth booster and, you know, had symptoms from the fourth booster and said, you know, I'm done with vaccines now because I don't want to be sick for a day and a half. And I don't really know how much protection this is going to give me. What do you say to those folks? I think the messaging about what vaccines can and can't do has been really problematic since they first rolled out. And, you know, they can prevent severe disease, hospitalization and death. They cannot prevent all infections. And so if you want to prevent yourself from getting infected, you're going to have to look to other tools like masking. Masking works really well. I have yet to get COVID, even though I've been working with COVID patients throughout the pandemic. Not everybody's going to want to do that. And there's a trade-off. If you get COVID, even if you've been boosted, you may be sick for several days. That's a lot shorter than the discomfort you might feel after vaccination. And then for people who are older and have chronic medical conditions, a lot of what we're seeing are people who have COVID and something in the hospital right now. So it might be COVID and heart failure. So their heart failure got exacerbated by the COVID. They have emphysema. Their emphysema got exacerbated by the COVID. And so especially if you have those underlying medical conditions where COVID can tip you over, so to speak, you really want to be employing other measures to protect yourself. Let's close with two last issues. One is What's the future in developing vaccines for these variants? It seems to me like it's really hard to catch up to the evolution of the virus with an effective vaccine. We seem to really have a challenge in front of us. And there's a lot of talk about trying to get pan-coronavirus vaccines. That's a long way off in the future. So what are we looking at, Celine, in the next three to five years? And then I'd like you to just quickly comment on, are things getting better in the science and the accumulation of data and insights scientifically around long COVID? So in terms of vaccine technology, you mentioned pan-coronavirus, pan-sarbicovirus is really what we're focused on. It's the types of coronaviruses of which SARS-CoV-2 is one, we are years away from having one that will be able to be scaled up and given to the general population. We don't have an operation warp speed where you have a lot of resources being mustered to bring these vaccines to market. To do a clinical trial, for example, you have to enroll a lot of people, thousands of people, and that costs money. We do have some candidates that look promising, but we're not there yet. In a sense, this is the holy grail, right? Because it would protect you against all the variants and you wouldn't have to update the vaccine. Other um, vaccine strategies include mucosal vaccines that could be something inhaled or perhaps taken by mouth. The idea here being that it would complement the immunity that you get with injectable vaccines. Injectable vaccines give you really good immunity in the bloodstream and the internal organs, but not so much on mucosal surfaces like your upper respiratory tract, your nose, your mouth. And that's where the infection with SARS-CoV-2 starts. So if you had somewhat better immunity in your nasal passages and your throat, that might be enough to head this off. So that's also being investigated. Also, 
at least a few years off. And then finally, skin microarray patches. There is some promise in that. Think of it as putting a piece of Velcro on your arm where it's like tiny, tiny needles that have vaccine on them. The advantage here is for people who are afraid of needles, and I think there's a lot of people who are like that, this would be an alternative that may not be so scary. And secondly, these skin patches allow for more delayed dosing of vaccines. So as opposed to getting it all at once, you're getting it spread out over time. And there is some evidence that may also provide a better, more robust immune response. So there are some vaccine technologies that are promising, but we're not there yet. Thank you. Tell us what your thoughts are on um, long COVID and are we, are we making progress in the collection of data and the trials and the, and the scientific inquiries into what the mechanisms are for this? The NIH has a large study that they're conducting on people who survived COVID, who now have long COVID, the RECOVER study. There have been a lot of challenges enrolling participants. So that's been difficult. And I think one of the ongoing challenges will be, how do you define this? Long COVID is probably a cluster of different syndromes, each with a different mechanism, different pathophysiology, underlying cause. And so that makes it very difficult because you're actually studying a group of different things, each of which may have different treatments. So we still really don't understand long COVID. But is it your feeling that either way we look at this, if there are three or four different mechanisms by which people have long-term chronic conditions... We're still looking at, if it's 5%, we're still looking at a very large population that's going to require care for a very long time, that's going to be expensive and be a new facet and burden within our health system. Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about those safety nets. We really do need safety nets for people who are coming down sick with this so that they aren't spreading when they're sick, so that they have supports, healthcare and social supports afterwards when they're sick or in recovery. And so that includes making sure they have health insurance so that they can access the care they need, having disability coverage if they can't work because of long COVID. There are many people who find themselves in a difficult situation because they can't go back to the work they used to do. So that is something that I think we, again, need to be thinking more proactively about. Celine, we've talked about a lot of really complex and difficult issues, some that are hard to talk about. Is there anything that gives you optimism going forward? We always like to ask that at the end of our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I think what gives me hope is in this current BA5 wave, people are not ending up in the ICU That's the way right. they used to. They're not getting as sick. So clearly, our immune systems are learning. We are fighting this off better. We're not to where we need to be if we continue having you know, 250, 300 people dying per day, that adds up to 125, 150,000 a year. So that's a lot more than even a bad flu year. So we're not where we need to be, but we certainly have made progress since 2020. Well, we really thank you for all this insight today. There's no better place to get it than from you. Really thank you for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.